This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice, and we are glad in it. If you're in agreement with that statement, say amen. Amen. I'm just going to tell you, that's a good-looking brother there in that video. Um, (laughs) You know, Kern Cakes didn't have to do no magic on that one. That was, uh, you know, thank you, man. I'm so glad to be here with you guys today. I count it a privilege and honor to be here. Uh, It's a big deal when a pastor opens up his pulpit, is what I would say, to a guest. And so I'm grateful for that. Uh, Jonathan is a friend. He's an encouragement to me. And uh, and I'm I'm grateful to have him in um, my my Rolodex of friends. I got a lot of them. So uh, grateful to have him. I want to shoot a shout out to someone who's not here. So she ain't even going to hear the shout out. Uh, My lovely wife, who would be sitting where Adam is sitting. Uh, my wife, Kelly, uh, you know, we live in Philly, which is about two hours south of here, and we have two kids, and, and neither one of them have, have crossed the threshold of four years old yet. And so it would have been the devil incarnate trying to get up in here <laughs> with two kids uh, early in the morning. But I'm grateful for my wife. I snatched her from St. Louis. I'm originally from Chicago, so snatched her from St. Louis to Chicago and drug her across the country to Philly. Uh, and so to start a church from scratch, you know, how do you tell that to her parents? That, you know? But uh, I'm grateful for my wife, Kelly. Uh, Lord willing, one day you'll have the opportunity to meet her. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Psalm 8. Uh, I, I realize that this is 2014, so most of y'all going to pull out your phone. So if you're scrolling to Psalm 8, say, I'm still looking. If uh, you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, still looking. I'll give you a second. So I'm going to begin reading here. Psalm 8, uh, verse 1, and I'm reading from an English Standard Version in case it sounds a little different from how you might see it in your favorite translation. But it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care? Say care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. I would like to tag this text, listen to the wind. Turn to the person next to you, say neighbor. Yeah, we like to talk up in here. So turn to your person, say neighbor. Listen to the wind. All right, let's pray hilariously funny. Father, we thank you so very much for your word, which, which in many days is a source of encouragement. Uh, and many times it's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, something that recalibrates my attention toward you. And uh, Lord, and, and as we look through this piece that talks about you, I mean, all of it talks about you, but as we look and hone in on this piece that's talking specifically about you today, we pray that you would bless your word that you would make it come alive, that you would speak to the hearts of your people, 
that you would convict us where necessary, that you would encourage us where necessary, that ultimately you would draw us closer to Jesus Christ, shaping us and chiseling us into your image. And we pray, Father, that you let me decrease, that you might increase. And I pray that at the presentation of your word, that uh, your name would be glorified and lifted up. Uh, It's in your son, Jesus's name, we pray. Amen. As one travels the world, it is nearly impossible to come away from it not feeling its beauty. It's difficult to stand along the sides of Niagara Falls and not to be blown away or left in a state of awe as you see large amounts of water cascading over the cliffs and making a thunderous roar as it reaches the bottom of the fall. Or to ski on the Alps and not to be taken away by the massiveness of these snow-covered mountains. It's nearly impossible to walk through what we would know as the redwood forest, seeing the sun peer through its leaves and, and not be thrown away or blown away by the height and the width of these massive trees. All these things have wonderful artistry within them. There is something that resounds loudly but speaks softly into our ears, calling our attention to God. For whatever reason, and I think it's, it's because God is a God who does not desire to be a mystery. There is a part of him that is mysterious, but, but God, by and large, desires that his creatures, the ones that he's made, his human beings, male and female, he desires for us to know him, and not just as a category, but to know his person. And God, in his kindness, in his love, and in his grace and mercy, has set it up where we can gain certain things about him from the things that he's made. That's what this psalm here is, 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 is all about. It's a, it's a celebratory psalm. It's a psalm that's, that's celebrating the creation that God has made. David is going to outline for us in, in these nine verses as he celebrates the, the majesty, the strength of God, and what that means for us as a human being. So there's a main thing that I think that this tailored is, this, this, this text is tailored to teach us, and that is this, that this great and awesome God who has carefully crafted all things cares for us and grants and shows us significance. I think as we walk through this piece, you'll, you'll identify three main parts that I'm going to attempt to break this and explain what the Lord is saying from here in. And the first thing is this, that the greatness of God shines through his creation. Let's look at the text. David starts off and he's talking to God in this psalm. This is a psalm that would be sung amongst the congregations to God. And, and they start off saying, O Lord, our Lord. In other words, he's, he's saying Yahweh, our Adonai. What's so interestingly beautiful about this is that you get the name Yahweh as the name that God has chosen to use to reveal himself to his people that he would say. If you are here and you're older than 1999, meaning you were born before then, you've seen the movie Prince of Egypt, have you not? If you've seen it, shoot your hand up in the air. If you haven't, just, you know, kind of hold it down. When you look at that movie, which has a great part of it that kind of teases out Exodus chapter 3, 
You see God calling Moses. You see God appearing in a burning bush, and he says, Moses, remove your shoes because I'm holy, and I don't want you to die, but show reverence and honor by removing your shoes and come to me because I have something to say. He says, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people, and I'm sending you to save them. Moses would say, "Uh, God, okay, I hear you. I'm a little afraid of this task. I have a stuttering issue, but what should I tell these people your name is? They're going to actually want to know what your name is. They're going to want to know who this God is that's being sent to them. Is he Ra, the sun God for the Egyptians? Who is this God? And, and God says something that is really interesting. He says, my name is Achyeh Asher Achyeh. Let me not get you lost on that. It literally means I am being what I am being. He would say that my name, in other words, God is even describing in his name that I'm so massively big. I am the definition of existence and everything that exists, even you, Moses, finds its root in me. And I'm so big, you can't even put a name to tag me. He says, I'm the definition of existence. And and then you would later see him refer to himself as Yahweh. The name that that no Jew would ever utter, Yahweh, a name that describes the very essence of God, a God who doesn't fit in a body until Jesus shows up, but a God who is and who will always be. He says, this is the God. David says, Yahweh, our Adonai, our Lord, our King. He's saying, you're so big and massive. You're not just out there nowhere, but you're actually our master that we actually sit accountable to you. He says, Yahweh, my Lord, the God of all creation, the one who made the heavens and the earth, you're our King. Sometimes we need to, as we come into God's presence with prayer and in praise, we need to be reminded how holy and how massive he is. Sometimes in the name of Jesus Christ, we pull God sometimes off of his throne in some ways. We pull him so close to us, which he's with us, but we can forget about his transcendence. Let me, let, me, let me twist it a bit and say what I mean. We can, in the name of making him so close to us and so loving to us and so kind to us, we can forget that he is massively larger than you. And he's the God who sits over you. He says, how majestic is your name? Now, we don't use terms in majestic. In fact, if you were walking down Atlantic Avenue and someone says your hair is majestic, you might take it as a compliment, but you might walk away like, Google what is majestic. He's saying how, how, how excellent, how, how glorious, how, how amazing, how matchless your name is. Now, again, understand that the name of God, Yahweh, that he throws out is describing his personhood. He's saying how massive and how incomparable you are in all the earth. David's saying, I can search any and everywhere, God, and there is nobody like you anywhere. He says, how majestic is your name, Lord. You have set your glory above the heavens. It's interesting. He's he's saying, I'm looking at the sky. I see how massively large the sky is, that it drapes completely across us. And and you've allowed that to shine something about your glory. Now, I know some smart people are saying, no, that's the sun. And the sun is shooting some rays. But but even the sun, as it sits there, for whatever reason, doesn't pull us into it. He He says, I'm looking at all you've made. 
And I say, man, you're letting yourself shine through it. Here it is. God allows creation to show things about him. Let me, let me give you some examples here. You can look at the river, right? The river, I live in Philadelphia, a big river that runs next to us is the Delaware. And that river was flowing before I was born, and it will flow after I'm born, which says something. That if this thing that is kind of temporary is there, and it's been there longer than Philly has been in existence, and it will be there after Philly's gone, then it says something about God, that God, you're eternal because this thing that you've made has lasted this long. He says, he says, your creation shouts about you. That's, that's the reason why no matter how learned you are, no matter where you go, you cannot help but being swept away by nature. You stand there and you look at the precipice of beauty and you are thrown away and thrown back by the massiveness of something that's speaking to you that you can't even know. He says, how majestic are you? You've, you've allowed creation to speak about you. But, but then he says, he says, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you've established strength. Now, in order for us to get this, we need to enter into ancient Near East because children, infants, babies, to us mean the world. I mean, how many of y'all love y'all kids? Tell the truth. All right, great. I would hope you say yes. There are entire markets that are surrounding kids nowadays. There used to be a time, and you know, I'm a black dude. My people came from Mississippi. Yes, Mississippi, Alabama. And there used to be a time where my ancestors ain't had no money. They didn't get no bassinets. They didn't get no flashy clothes and all that stuff. When a baby was born, what you did with it to make it a bassinet, you pulled out the bottom drawer and you laid a blanket in it so that it's calm and nice and you laid the baby in it. That was a bassinet. But now, some of y'all are like, that's child abuse. That's kind of crazy. But now we have markets that are designed for kids. You almost have to put a second mortgage on your home just to get your kid to go from one month to two years old. All the things that we have to buy when our child is born, we have to make sure that it has a bassinet and, and we have to get neutral colors, neutral colors, because we don't want to necessarily know what the gender is. So neutral colors. So we got to spend on that and we got to get all types of toys and we got to make sure it has a bib that looks really nice instead of just taking a, a bandana and tying it there. I mean, that sounds country as all get out, but, but, but we got to spend money on kids. But because in America, we have a very high value on children and we should. But in other parts of the world, as in ancient Near East, kids had very little significance. They oftentimes, and even in many places today, sat at the bottom of society. So a child meant very little. Even if you check statistics and you see what's the poorest group of people in the world, it's going to be kids. When you look in most cities and you talk about poverty rate of cities, when when you look at who's going to be the poorest, it's going to be children. Children in the ancient Near East and in this text, David is saying children have have very little significance, but check the language here. He says, you've allowed them to be able to proclaim something about you, which points to a deeper biblical truth, and that is this, that God oftentimes in the Bible uses things that are insignificant, nonsensical, and unimportant to to proclaim his strength. That, that's, the, that's the reason why you as a believer should not be ashamed to sound stupid to tell people about Jesus, because God uses something that sounds nonsensical to say to people who think they're smart something about him. What's interesting is when you look at this text, you see two things speaking. You see creation speaking about God, and you see insignificant things speaking about God, which says this, because he says, you do this to silence your foes. Who are the foes? 
The foes are all of us. Paul says that apart from Christ, we were hostile to God. Well, how am I hostile to God? I never necessarily said I'm going to just dethrone God and, and I hate you, but, but all of us were born in sin and shaping in iniquity, and all of us have a bent towards doing opposite of what God wants, and because we do opposite of what God wants, we, according to the scriptures, are rebels to God. And he says to silence folks, I have allowed two things to speak about me my created order, and insignificant people. Listen, you might be sitting here and you feel insignificant and you wonder if God can use you. I got some biblical examples that say he can. Moses, a man who murdered someone who was fearful of his life and was away and hiding and God chose him who stuttered, by the way. Y'all ever seen King's speech? That was Moses. Be standing up in front of the king, just get, 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 you know, that's, that's, that's Moses. God chose a stammerer who was afraid that he was going to die to face the strongest man in the world to declare things about God. God took a boy named David who dealt with sheep, and we like to talk about how cute and beautiful that is, but it meant that he smelt like crap and said that you crap-smelling dude are going to be the king of my nation. God took a Jesus who was born in a manger. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a slop trough. That's not a hotel bedroom. That's a, that's, a, that's a slop trough where you threw scraps for pigs to munch on. He says, I'm going to send my son Jesus something to be born in Bethlehem, which is the Philly of the East Coast, the, the part that don't nobody care about. And I'm, I'm going to cause my son to be born in an insignificant place, that, and he will do something that will change the nations. God chooses insignificance to proclaim things about him. But, but then the second thing that we see is that the greatness of God reveals a deep mystery of his care for us. How do I get that? He says, God, when I look at your, fi- at the, at your heavens, the work of your fingers. Now, he's using anthropomorphic language here. Don't get lost on the term. But what it simply means is God has no human form other than Jesus, he, 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 he was a spirit, according to Christ, that, that he's using language to describe something that God did. Now, when you're looking at a psalm, you have to jump into the poetry here because you can't understand this poetic prose unless you get the language here. He's saying, he's saying, God, when I look up at the darkness and I see the stars that you have sculpted and set into place, this is poetry here. He's, he's saying, when I see the, the canopy of darkness and the bright light shining through it, and, and when I see the shooting stars that, that go through it, when, I, when I'm in, in, in Alaska and I look up and I see the northern lights, he says, I'm, I'm blown away by the fact that you sculpted that, which, which would imply, as the David would be saying, that you're bigger than what you made. He says, but when I see this, it makes me say, what is man? David is saying to us that that when we walk with God, like when God goes from being a category of something you know about, but when he becomes your personal savior, there will be times that you will question why he even cares for you. And that's important because God really does want you to know in the grand scheme of things, he does not need you. I I, I don't care what you think you bring to the table, the education, the class, what block you live on, what neighborhood you're from. There there is a real serious insignificance as it relates to God and you. I don't know if you've ever been on a plane before and you're flying and and you're just kind of, you know, the plane is huge. You know, you're walking out to the plane. It's just a massive 
thing. You're about to get on a 747. And you're sitting there with 200, 300 people on that plane. All of them got big heads just like you. And as you're flying, if you've ever noticed, looking out of your window, I saw this a few weeks ago where a plane flew past us. Now, it, wasn't, it didn't clip us. It didn't come close to us. It was a good distance. And, but one thing that stuck out to me was how small that plane was. Now, I know that's perspective, but, but in the grand scheme of things, God wants you to understand this, that, that, that you're really small. This, this is what Isaiah would say, that, that, that human beings are like grasshoppers to him. That, that he's not at all thrown by us. David says, when I think about the things that you've done, the fact that you can take people and, and you can paint them like colors and, and have them come from different cultures to, to proclaim something beautiful about you. When I think about that, I say, what is man that you care? But then David says, but not that you're so, we're so insignificant that you're so far away and you could care less about us. But he says, but you care for us. I love the language. You're, you're mindful of him. You think about him. You care for him, which, which says this, that although God is big and massive and, and he sits enthroned upon above everything, that he can know each of us and care for each and every one of us. That he can know the numbers of the hairs on your head or the lack on mine and know us so intimately and be mindful of you and to care for you. Be, be encouraged about that, that, that although God is big, he ain't deistic. He's not so far away that he can't care for you, that he doesn't think good thoughts for you, that he doesn't actually want to know you or you to know him. He says, when I look at this, I, I, I have to understand, God, there's a mystery. Why do you even care? But then David transitions and leads us to another point here, third and final point, and it's this, that God is mindful of us and he, he cares for us, but part three is that this great God grants and shows us the significance that he grants us. Let me say that differently, that this great God who has granted us significance, he'll show us how significant we are. Let, let, me, let me show you how I got it. He says, You've made man a little lower than heavenly beings. In other words, angels. A lot of people like to deify angels and be like, you know, my grandmama's an angel up in heaven now with God or angels are watching over my shoulders. The scriptures would say God made us lower than the angels. But then he would say, but you crowned us with glory and honor. This is a picture of a coronation where, where the king or someone more important will, will take a crown and put it on your head. He says, human beings, I made you lower than my heavenly beings but I see you as more valuable than them. He says, I, I, I've given you glory and honor. This, this is coming from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 when, Genesis, when, God, when God says, let us make man in our likeness and in our image. Do you know that nothing else in creation has the image of God? That if you read Genesis chapter 1, he says, let this be and it was and let this happen and it does and let this be this way and let these things come. But then he takes intentionality with us and says, hold on, hold on. Let us make man in our likeness and in our image. And then the text says that God scoops down and he makes us, which says that God in his crowning us with glory and honor has made each and every person significant. That's, that's, how, that's how David can say in Psalm 139 that, that, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that, that you have importance to God. 
That, that is the reason why God actually gets upset when people who have his image treat other people who have his image like they're crap. That, that, that's why God did not smile when racism and slavery and racism that still happens today is going on. He ain't, he ain't chilling saying, let's play chess and enjoy what's happening with these mere creatures. He's offended by it because it says that you're saying that my image is ugly. Each man has significance. Each woman has significance. You may be sitting here today and you may not like what you see when you look in the mirror. You may not like yourself. You may think you shouldn't even been born. But God has given each and every one of us a sense of significance and dignity because he has made us in his image. And God don't waste his image. But then he says... He's given us this position, but he's granted us dominion over the works of his hands and all that he's made are under our feet as humans. He says, he says, we're over the sheep and the oxen. That's the domesticated animals. So that's, that's, that's cats, dogs and stuff. You're over the beasts of the fields, which are undomesticated animals like lions, tigers, and bears. He says, you're over the birds of the heavens. You're over the fish of the sea. You're over whatever goes under the water. You're over all this. In other words, he's saying, I made you and I set you over my creation and said, run it for me. Doesn't mean he says exploit it and use it like crap, but he says, enjoy it, have fun in it, rule it. But when you look at Psalm chapter eight, this is where he begins to show significance here. When you look at Psalms five through eight, this looks like a harmonious picture, doesn't it? He set us over all these things, and now we can bounce through the field and slap lilies and say, God has put us over these things. But when we look at the world we live in today, we see a different story. The very things that God has placed us over actually sometimes rule over us. Let me me tell you what I mean. It's the reason how water that we can stand and drink and enjoy it and use it to bathe can in one minute wipe out a population of 100,000 people through a tsunami. It's the same reason why we can look at the beauty of a lion's cub and understand that if we don't get away from it by the time it gets bigger, it can tear you to shreds. It's, It's the same reason why things that were made to help you actually hurt you. It's the same reason why human beings that are supposed to be sitting here together, it's the reason why we can hate each other because there's dishonor, there's disunity here. Well, how did it get this way? I'm glad you asked. You didn't ask it, but I'm going to tell you how it got this way. (laughs) God, when he made human beings and said, obey me, man made a decision to say, I want what you got. In other words, he said, God said, don't eat of this fruit or else you will die. And and the serpent says, no, you won't die. You'll just know what God wants you to not know because he's lying to you. And the root of all our sin is that we want what's God's. That's the root of it. It's, it's not the little acts that we do. It's the, it's the fact that we want what is not rightfully ours. And that day in the garden, man, humans, made a decision to do what God told them not to do, and God frustrated the rest of the world. Sin entered into the world. Because sin entered into the world, the Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. So now everything dies. This is why Paul says that the whole creation yearns and groans for Jesus to return because it's in frustration. It's it's the reason why people are enemies of each other. But God says, although man has done this and has isolated himself from me, I want to bring a solution. The solution's not going to be in their education system. 
The solution's not going to be in their philanthropic efforts. Their solution is not going to be in them gaining material things. The solution has to come from me. And God says, I want to call a council meeting. God calls a council meeting with his own justice. And he calls a council meeting with his son, Jesus Christ. And they have a board executive meeting. And and God says, my people have dissed me and left me. Justice stands up and says, God, I know how you can fix that. Lay the hammer down and give them what they deserve at this moment. But Jesus says, justice, hold on, hold on. Don't say it too quickly. I'll take the brunt of that hammer. Jesus says to justice, go wait on the cross of Calvary until I return. Jesus comes and enters into the flesh. This is what the, what's so beautiful about this text, because this is how God shows us, because this ain't really about us, but, but it fulfills itself in Christ, because Hebrews chapter 1 is going to pick up on this text again. It says that for a little while, Christ is made lower than the angels. In other words, God steps off the throne and says that I need to fix this situation, and I'm going to make myself lower than the angels for a short time. Why? So that I can understand the struggles of humanity so that I can understand heartbreak, so that I can understand anger with other people, so that I can understand their sin and their condition. He says that he comes as a man less than the angels, and and he comes in a human bodysuit called skin. And in that human bodysuit called skin, he takes on our sin, and our sin goes on his back. But he doesn't just walk around with our sin on his back, but he goes to a cross, And as he goes to that cross, he's nailed to it. Now, Jesus didn't die on a cross because he was bored on a Friday night. He didn't wake up on a Friday morning and say, what shall I do with my time today? I think I'll go to a cross. But but Jesus goes to the cross because he understands that his death will be the very thing that will cause God to have justice and for God to extend his love to humanity. He says, I'll take it. And he hangs on the cross and God pours the wrath that he has for us onto his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ dies and he raises from the dead. That's why Hebrews is going to pick up again and say that he was crowned with glory and honor based on Hebrews chapter one. Why? Because he tasted death for all men. And then he rose from the dead and Hebrews will pick up on verse six and say that he is given dominion over all things. Now, it may not seem like everything sits under Jesus, but there'll come a time when Jesus will come back. And when Jesus comes back, everything will be subjected to him practically. What do I mean by that? Paul would say that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue will confess. That'll mean people will bow to Christ either by choice or by force. Then things that have enmity against each other, right? Like, like you put a lamb and a lion in a room together and see won't they tear each other up. I, I, I don't care how much you love both of them. You put a lion and a lamb in a room, what's going to happen? But that's why Isaiah says that when the Messiah returns, the lion and the lamb will lie down together. What is he saying? That that, that enmity and hatred will be snatched out the world. He says that no longer will old people die. No longer will kids die before they reach adulthood based on Isaiah 66. Why? Because death has actually been dealt with. What does that mean for us? That means we'll never have to sit there and cry again from someone who dies from cancer. It means we'll never have to sit there and worry and fear death again because death will be dealt with when Jesus returns. That's how God shows our significance to him. That in while we were sinning, this is what Paul would say, while we were living our life absent of him, careless about him, doing what we wanted to do, he sent Jesus to die for us. Picture how beautiful that is. 
That's saying that if, if I smack somebody in this room in the face, how many of y'all going to smack me back? Tell the truth. There you go. I'm, I love the honesty. If I smack you, you're going to smack me back. And I'm glad. You know, I would want you to. But not, not really. But, 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 but this is what Paul is saying. It says that while we were perpetually slapping God in the face, instead of him laying the hammer on us, he sends Jesus Christ to take the hammer for us. And that's how he shows our significance to him. What's the point? What's the point? That this great, awesome, mighty, matchless God who has crafted and created everything that we see and enjoy cares for us and has granted significance to us, and he shows us that significance through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I stand in awe. I've been in cities my entire life, and so, Lord, I don't really get out much to see all the nature and beautiful things, but I do stand in awe when I look at people, when I see how you made us all how we bring so many different things to the table of humanity. And all these things are not just because of who we are, but but really because of what you've done uh, in making us. Father, I stand in awe at just your might, your strength, your power, your holiness, your splendor, your love. And so, Father, I pray, Lord God, that as we go about our days and our lives, let us meditate and concentrate on how awesome you are, as the song said, and how great you are, and how glorious you are. But then help us to, in the midst of getting lost in that, to realize the mystery of your care for us, to bask in the mystery of your care for us, and then help us to find our significance in what you've granted to us. We love you so very much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.